beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's the scene in the wilderness of Judea about 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, dry and barren scene where there is a roughly dressed prophet and there's one more peasant walking up to be baptized. Why in the world did we get out of bed this morning and put on our clothes, our Sunday clothes, and gather in this place to to hear a story which is so far removed from us in time and space? What does it have to do with us? Everything. The baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of those key moments in the history of redemption on par with his birth and with his death and with his resurrection and with his ascension and with his great coming again. This, in our text this morning, is a great event in the history of redemption because in this text before us this morning, the Lord Jesus is inaugurated into his office as the Messiah, as they would say in Hebrew, or as the Christ, as they would say in Greek. And if the words of the event of this text had not happened, then the death of Jesus Christ on the cross would not have meant or accomplished anything. So let's look at what the Holy Spirit teaches us from our text this morning. It starts off, then Jesus came from Galilee. Then. When is this then? It's at that time when John was baptizing and proclaiming the coming Christ and telling people to prepare their hearts because the kingdom is at hand. It has come. The time has come. What the entire Old Testament was crying out for and looking forward to, it's finally here. And then Jesus Jesus comes from Galilee. When John starts preaching and baptizing And Jesus comes from Galilee. You know what it means that he comes from Galilee? It means he comes from the back country. It's kind of like coming from Labrador. Who lives in Labrador? It's not a center of power. Don't know a lot of famous people necessarily that live and work in Labrador. Comes from Galilee, from obscurity, from humility. An unknown and humble person coming from an unimportant and humble place. He's been waiting and working his whole life, just waiting for this moment. And now the time has come. You know, look at it there on the page in the Bible. Then Jesus came from Galilee. It's really fast to read, isn't it? But do we stop to think about what it means? It means that Jesus walked for 130 kilometers 
in the hot sun, over bad roads, in danger of highway robbers and angry Roman soldiers. Probably spent the better part of three days to get here. You know why he walked that far, children? You know why Jesus walked 130 kilometers? That's like walking from here to Lacombe, almost all the way to Red Deer. Walking takes long enough in the car, doesn't it? Why did Jesus do that? He did it for you. Because he loves you. Would you walk, would we walk 130 kilometers for Jesus? Jesus comes from Galilee. Why? Comes to the Jordan. Why? He comes to John. Why? To be baptized by him. He comes to the Baptists in the wilderness, this dry and barren and undeveloped place far from the sophisticated center of power in Jerusalem, far from the comforts and trappings of royalty, which he really deserves because he's king. He comes to this dry and barren place, and we're reminded of what we, what we read in Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There's nothing attractive in this scene, this roughly dressed prophet, this poor, travel-weary peasant in this wilderness place. And yet what is about to happen is one of the most important events in the history of the universe. He walked all that way to be baptized. Now, children, you know that the Lord Jesus doesn't have any sins. The Lord Jesus never sinned. He didn't think a sin. He didn't speak a sin. He didn't do a sin. And you know also from our reading of last week, the beginning of John chapter 3, you know that John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance. Look at verse 2 of our chapter. Repent, Well, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at verse 6. People came, they repented, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So people come to John, and the reason, what they're saying is, when they go down into the river to be baptized, they're saying, I'm a sinner. I need to repent. I need the filth of my sins to be washed away. So why does Jesus go to get baptized? He has no filth. He has no sins to be washed away. That's why John can't figure it out. Look at verse 14. John says, no. John would have prevented him. He tries his best. No, Lord. This is not, this is not the way things should be. I, if anybody needs to be baptizing someone, you need to be baptizing me. I'm the sinner. I'm the filthy one. I need my sins washed away. But you are the holy one of Israel. John knew who his Savior was. John knew it ever since John was a little baby inside his mother's womb. When Mary came with Jesus in her womb to visit Elizabeth. 
And John was in Elizabeth's womb. Then when Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, John leaped within her. And Elizabeth said, who am I? How am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She was filled with the Holy Spirit. And John was also moved by the Holy Spirit, even as an unborn baby, to worship his Lord. And we can be certain that as he grew up, he was certainly categorized by his parents in who he was and what his role was and also who Jesus was and what his role was. So John says, no, Lord, this, this, this isn't going to work. I can't baptize you. It's not right. And Jesus, Jesus says, let it be so now. Let it be so now. John Calm down. Let this happen. It's a gentle word, but it's a firm word. It is a command of the king of kings. He has a laser focus on his office, like the psalmist says in Psalm 40, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That's what Jesus came to do. He spent the last 30 years in obscurity. Why? Because that was the will of God. He was born to poor peasant parents. Why? Because that was the will of God. As a child, even though he was perfect and his parents were imperfect, he obeyed and honored his parents. Why? Because that was the will of God. As a young man, he spent years and decades working with his hands in construction waiting to begin his messianic ministry. Why? Because that was the will of God. If the first Adam plunged the world into misery because he didn't listen to the will of God, the last Adam will redeem the world by obeying the will of God. And there he was all those years waiting. You know why? As the apostle writes in the letter to the Hebrews, he did not take the honor of his office upon himself, but waited until he was called by God. And now when he's about 30 years old, now is the time. Because now the herald's voice is crying in the wilderness, make way, the way of, make ready the way of the Lord. The kingdom is near. The king has come. Now the day for entering his office as Messiah, as Christ has come. And so Jesus says to John, let it happen, John. It is fitting for us to fulfill. Now, as, we, as you, we read through the first chapters of Matthew, as we have done in the past weeks, we, we notice that Matthew emphasizes fulfillment of Scripture. He often quotes a Scripture from the Old Testament and says, well, this happened, or he, quotes something, he says something happened, and then he quotes a Scripture of the Old Testament and prefaces it by saying this was to fulfill was what, what was written. So Matthew calls attention to the fact that Jesus fulfills the, the ancient prophecies and all of the scriptures. And Jesus says to John, listen, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. All righteousness. 
John, I'm not just here to fulfill a few scattered prophecies here and there. But I am here to fulfill all righteousness, John. I am here for the complete fulfillment of the will of God. I am here to do what is well-pleasing to God. I am here to reestablish a right relationship between God and man. I am here to set all things right. So just listen, John. Just do what's right. Do your job. Let it happen. You're doing your job. You're preparing the way. You're announcing my coming. And I'm, I'm doing my job. I have come. I am the true son of David who will reign in perfect righteousness. I am here to inaugurate the kingdom which has no end. I am the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I am here to bring the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I am the one of whom it was written, His knowledge, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. I'm a king of righteousness. I'm the high priest of righteousness. And I am like the prophet. I am the prophet like Moses that God promised to raise up and put his words in my mouth to reveal the righteousness of God. To call everyone to submit to and embrace the righteousness of God. King, high priest, and prophet of righteousness. So John, just obey. It is fitting. It's good. It's right. It's our job. So Jesus is baptized. He goes down into the waters of the Jordan. Now, I don't want to spend too long on this, but I do want to say that people often think going down into the water and then coming up again, and they think of a modern uh, baptism by immersion. That's not what the text is emphasizing. The emphasis here is not on immersion. The emphasis is on washing. Naaman, you remember Naaman, He came to the prophet to be cleansed from his leprosy. He was told to go and wash in the river. And he did, finally, after complaining for a bit. And then he went in and washed. He was told to to wash and to be clean. And so he dipped himself seven times. He went down into the water and washed himself seven times. No immersion happened. That's the picture here. Baptizing in the scripture can be immersion, but doesn't have to be. Just turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 7, verse 4 for a minute. Mark 7, verse 4 speaks about the Pharisees. Uh, When they come home from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. The verb there in Greek is unless they baptize themselves. Jesus isn't saying that the Pharisees come home and plunge themselves under the water. Very few people would have had a pool in their house to do that. It's talking about washing. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing, and here the word too is baptism, the baptism of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. They didn't take their couches and plunge them into a pool 
to immerse them. Now, there's nothing wrong with immersion. It's a beautiful picture. But the church over the last 2,000 years has always accepted baptism by immersion or by sprinkling or by effusion, which is sprinkling with a lot more water. So Jesus is baptized. He goes down, and there is the washing with water. What did it point to? Well, we know what it points to. It says, you need to wash away filth. You are dirty. You are unclean. You cannot come into the presence of a holy God. And people have come to John the Baptist in repentance and confessing their sins, and they've been baptized, and they've said, yes, I am a sinner. I need washing. I am foul. I am filthy. I am dirty. I am unclean because of my sins. So why, why does the Lord Jesus do this? How can he do this? What sin or uncleanness can he have? None. And yet, all. Didn't we read that in Isaiah 53? Surely he has borne, he has carried our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus stands there in the waters of the Jordan. And he identifies with God's people. He identifies with us in all the depths of our shame and the guilt of our sin. Jesus carries all the sin and shame and guilt of his people down into the river. Now, baptism, amongst other things, is also a naming ritual. And Jesus, as he stands there in the river, being washed with the washing of John's baptism, declares to the world and to the universe, my name is sinner. He takes upon himself all the sin, all the shame, all the guilt of his people. Child of God, what are you ashamed of? What guilt is still weighing down on your soul? Maybe it's something from a long time ago that you haven't told anyone, but you're consumed with shame and, and guilt, and you don't dare to, to say a word. Maybe it's something that you're undergoing right now that you're ashamed of. It's oppressing your conscience. It's choking your joy. And the Holy Spirit says to you this morning, give it up. Let go. Hand it over. For it was laid upon him. That's the gospel. And you must believe it. The righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. That's the gospel. Accept it. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You get what Paul is saying in that quote? He was made sin. We were made righteous. 
He switched everything around, didn't he? The righteous one was made sin, and we sinners were made righteous. That is the glorious gospel transaction. And so this baptism year had to happen for the cross to make sense. Jesus has to be bearing sin so that he can take that sin to the cross and pay for that sin there at Golgotha. Jesus stands there in the river Jordan as the last Adam, as the federal covenant head of the redeemed humanity. He stands there for you. And he stands there for me. And he takes your sins. And he takes my sins down into the water. And he declares, these sins are going to be washed away. And you know how they're going to be washed away? In my blood. They're dealt with. They're gone. And then the evangelist Matthew says, and behold, behold, pay attention, he's saying, behold, the heavens were opened to him. Now the first Adam was driven from paradise. He was driven from God's presence. The door was closed and locked behind him. And the angels, the cherubim with a flaming sword said, stay out of God's presence, you sinner. You can't come in. And for centuries, God's people have been reminded that the way to a holy God is barred to unholy sinners. Because those cherubim were embroidered onto the curtain in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. For centuries, the people of Israel have known the truth of Isaiah 59 too. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. For centuries, God's people have cried in, in depths of acute sense of their sin and unworthiness and separation from God. They've cried the cry of Isaiah 64.1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, Lord, and deal with our sins and make a way back into your presence. And after those hundreds and thousands of years of waiting and longing and crying and being shut out, now, behold, the heavens were opened to the last Adam. One of the other evangelists says it more, says it more sharply. He says the heavens were torn open. It's an answer. To the cry of God's people. That door which has been slammed shut since Adam the first. Is opened to the new Adam. To the second Adam. To the last Adam. And then the spirit of God descends like a dove. Why like a dove? Well in the scripture when there's a dove fluttering around then good things are happening. After the flood, the dove flying around and brought back the proof of the growth of new life, a new creation to be built after the destruction of the old in water. New life, new creation. That's what a dove symbolizes and points to. You see a dove, 
then things are about to be made gloriously new. There's a little hint of that in the first chapter of the Bible. When there are the waters, God made the heavens and the earth, and it's just all water so far, and, and then the, the Spirit of God was, was hovering, was fluttering like a bird over the waters. Something gloriously new is about to happen. So it's one thing that the, the Spirit descending like a dove teaches us here. There's a lot more. In the Old Testament, there are many ancient prophecies about the servant of the Lord who will come, the Messiah. And over and over again, they speak of the Spirit being upon him. Open your Bible for a moment to Isaiah 42, for instance. Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I have put my spirit upon him. I could multiply the ancient prophecies which say the same thing, that the spirit of God will be upon the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. Now, John has just been preaching that the kingdom is at hand. And Jesus is inaugurated in here into his messianic office, which includes being a king. We sang about that in, in Psalm 2. And there's the reference at the end of our text to, this is my beloved son. That's, a, that's a, an echo of Psalm 2. And we would expect that maybe a spirit the spirit would have chosen another bird than a dove. Because Jesus, and we, we sang Psalm 2, Jesus will come and he will, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will destroy all of his enemies. And in the first part of chapter 3, we, we were reminded just before our text that he will baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire. He will gather his wheat into the barn, the chaff. He will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus is going to come as a mighty king. He's going to set things right in the kingdom. And so we might expect an eagle, some really powerful bird, to show that power and that glory of the Messiah as king. But we get a dove. The Lord Jesus is anointed as Messiah by the Spirit, which takes a form like a dove. Why a dove? Well, because the judgment is held back for later. First comes grace and a call to believe and to life. A dove is peace and gentleness. And that's what we read in Isaiah 42, if you've still got your finger there. When the Spirit's upon the servant of the Lord, how will he come? He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The Messiah comes in the power of the Spirit. But the Spirit works differently than the way we fallen human beings think power works. 
Doesn't the Lord say in the Old Testament, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, because the spirit before the judgment day, the spirit works with gentle, loving, life-giving action in this world. That's why the Lord Jesus says what he says when he reads the scroll in the synagogue a little later on in the Gospels. And he reads Isaiah chapter 61, doesn't he? 61, 1 and 2 of Isaiah. And here again, it's another one of those texts which says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, the Messiah, because the Lord has anointed me, he's ordained me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's how our Savior comes. He comes with that gentle, loving, life-giving, life-affirming, life-renewing, life-restoring, gracious love of God. That's how he comes into the world. For God so loved the world. Not for God so was so angry with the world, but he sent his son to tell him off. For God so loved the world that he holds out the good news of life in Christ Jesus. Now, you remember Lord's Day 12? Why are you called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing. This ordination of the Lord Jesus has to do with you, my brother and my sister. We get to participate in the, the mission of the Christ, of the Messiah to the world. We too share in his role, in his office as king, as priest, and as prophet. And the way we do it has to be the way of the Spirit. It has to be the way of the dove, not seeking to impose our will and our power, not seeking by political means to impose what we think on others, but to bring the life-restoring, gracious love of God and the power of the Spirit. And this, this dove comes to rest on the Lord Jesus. He comes to rest on him, and he stays on him. Now, we, we may wonder about that. Why would the Lord Jesus need the Holy Spirit? Because he is God, and it's his Spirit, so he's already, he already has the, the Spirit. We have to understand that the Holy Spirit does a lot of things. He does a lot of things if you read through the Scriptures. It's amazing how many different things the Holy Spirit does. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does is He gives breath to all human beings, even the unbelievers. The only reason they can walk around and breathe is because the Holy Spirit is giving them life at every moment. The Scripture says in Psalm 104, when you take away your breath, when you take away your spirit, they die and go back to the ground. So the Holy Spirit keeps all human beings alive and also the animals that have breath, he keeps them alive. In him we live and move and have our being, says the apostle. 
The Holy Spirit also changes hearts. He comes into the heart of a a person that is a hard heart of stone of unbelief, and he does a miracle and makes that heart into a heart which loves God and loves his word. It's another thing the Holy Spirit does. He comes to live in the believer and to lead the believer in the way of life and obedience to God's commands and to apply the law so that it's a delight to us. And write it on our hearts. That's another thing he does. And yet another thing that the Holy Spirit does is he anoints and he equips for office. And it's in that sense that he comes upon the Lord Jesus in our text and stays on him. Jesus is being anointed with the Holy Spirit to take up his office in the power of the Spirit. And that, my brother and sister, is the only way we can fulfill our office and our calling, whatever it is in this world, only if the Spirit of the living God, who has called us and appointed us and ordained us to that office, whatever it is, only in his power as he rests upon us. And then we have that behold again. The apostle says, behold, behold a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. As behold, this is my beloved son reminds us of Psalm 2, which we sang. There's that great messianic prophecy of the all-powerful king of kings. And at the same time, the second part of what the voice from heaven speaks is a reminder of the fact that this great mighty king comes as a humble, suffering servant. Behold, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's, a, that's a, an echo of Isaiah chapter 42. My servant in whom I am well pleased. What is God telling us here? He's telling us again, my power is made perfect in weakness. The way that the kingdom of darkness works is to reach up and grab, to seek power so that you can dominate, so you can make other people do your will, so that you can decide what is good and what is evil, so that you call the shots. That's the the lie that Adam and Eve fell into. When Jesus comes here as the last Adam, he says, that's not the way it works. Those who would rule amongst you must be ministers and servants. What does he say to the apostles? He says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's how authority works. That's how leadership works. That's how government works. That's how power works in the kingdom of the Lamb. It is loving authority. It is a sacrificially loving authority. It is a gentle authority. It is a serving authority. It's an authority which stoops down and seeks the well-being of the persons over whom he has authority. That's what Jesus is teaching us here again. This is my beloved son, says the voice from heaven. 
with whom I am well pleased. This is the one, finally, after Adam and Eve gave the keys to the kingdom to the devil and said, here, devil, everybody's on your side. We're together with the kingdom of darkness. We betray the entire world under your dominion, your cruel authority. And ever since the fall, we've been looking and we've been waiting. Where is the one? The psalmist asks it in the 15th Psalm. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can come into the presence of the Holy One of Israel? Who can get back into the presence of God? Who can get past the cherubim with their flaming swords? Who is holy? Who is worthy? And the voice from heaven says, He is. Christ is. Jesus is. He is my beloved son. My beloved. He fits the bill. He is acceptable. Take a good look at that word beloved in our text, verse 17. Beloved. Look at it. Does it seem familiar to you? Every Sunday, God puts that word on you. Every Sunday, he says to you, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every Sunday, he reminds you that you have been made acceptable in the beloved You know why he calls you beloved every week? Because he loves you. You know why he loves you? Because he loves Christ. And you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, he loves you with an eternal, immutable, everlasting love. He loves you. That's what God is saying. when He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He's not just talking about Jesus there. He's talking about all the church of all times and places, all those who are in Christ. And so we asked at the beginning of the sermon, what in the world does the scene have to do with us? And the answer is everything. Everything. Because here we have our great high priest. Here we have our great and eternal king. If you look at hymn 38, which we're about to sing, we're going to lift up the name of our great high priest, the name above all names. He reigns as the Son of God and surpasses all other titles, powers, and claims. And you know what? Jesus isn't there in his state of humiliation in the Jordan getting washed by the water of the baptism of John. He's not there anymore. He's not a a poor, unknown peasant in the wilderness. But he has lived his life. He has suffered his suffering. He has sacrificed his sacrifice. He has broken the power of sin and death in the grave. He has risen. He is at the right hand of God. He has made the way open to all the sons and daughters of Adam. And he sits there now at God's right hand. And he is crowned with praise. No more an outcast. His preeminence long planned such a great high priest we have, strong to help, supreme to save. So let's sing his praise with him. 38. Amen.